0: Dripping Down Science The Naked Scientists
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 13th of March. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And me, Dave Ansell.
2: And with me, Sarah Costa-Perry.
1: It's time for another question and answer extravaganza. Coming up, we'll be discovering the answers to why a blue laser made Matt's nuts glow, why bright light cause blotchy vision, and we'll also unpeel the answer to this question.
3: Hi, this is Neil from Vila Treslan in Switzerland. Why is it that a potato peeler
4: doesn't need sharpening where every other kitchen knife does?
2: intriguing stuff. And in the news this week, we'll be looking at the earthquake situation unfolding in Japan, including the radiation threat from the damaged nuclear power station at Fukushima. We'll also find out why diamonds are a girl's best friend, but cancer's worst enemy.
4: And if you're feeling experimental, in Kitchen Science, I'll be showing you how to bend water to your will just using a balloon. So if you have any questions for us, do get in touch
2: you can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is Chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: This is this week's Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry. And let's kick off with a look at what situation the situation is in Japan and how it's unfolding, Sarah.
2: First of all, just to recap on the situation. On the 11th of March, uh, a massive major earthquake struck uh, off the eastern coast of Japan. It was measured at an 8.9 magnitude and it was a mega thrust Uh, earthquake, which is the type that you get where you have a subduction zone, where you have one tectonic plate being squeezed underneath another one. It hit about 130 kilometres east of Sendai, which is in Honshu, which is the big main island. Uh, And the epicentre was in the Japan Trench, which is where you have the Pacific plate subducting under part of the Eurasian plate. And although the earthquake was actually massive, what caused a lot of the damage was a 10 metre tsunami. So it's caused huge amounts of damage in the country.
1: A part of the reason why Japan suffers so many quakes, because they're not unusual there, are they? I mean, they're getting hundreds a year, is because it's at the uniting point of three major plates.
2: Exactly. It's at the meeting between the Philippine, the Pacific and the Eurasian plates. So there's a lot of chances there for various different sorts of earthquakes. So the ones where you have plates sliding along each other or subducting underneath each other, which is what happened in this case.
1: And Dave, what's actually going on is you've got huge amounts of material moving or trying to move it gets to a point where it can't move because you have a plate boundary and therefore energy is getting stored up and eventually it gives and unleashes all that stored energy from many, many
4: years of movement, but all at once. Yeah, that's right. Essentially, it's a huge amount of kind of elastic energy. It was an 8.9 Richter scale earthquake that's equivalent to 300 million tonnes of TNT going off all at once. It's an immense amount of energy. Is that unprecedented? Have we had one that big before? It's certainly in the, about the top 10 earthquakes since we've been measuring them in the last 150 years, so it's a really, really, really serious earthquake. Earthquake. Could you talk us through the mechanism of how we ended up with this tsunami? What actually would have provoked that? Fundamentally, because you've got one plate being pushed under the other one, so as the strain energy is building up, the plate is getting bent downward. And effectively, it's pushing up the other plate. Then all of a sudden, it jumps, and the um, Pacific plate jumps downwards, and the Japanese plate jumps upwards. That lifts up billions and billions of tons of water. By I'm not sure how what the throw was on the earthquake, but it's probably going to be a few meters. All of a sudden, you've got a huge amount of water, several meters higher than it should do. That creates a great big wave. It then moves in towards the coast. As any wave runs up the coast, it gets higher and higher and higher. I'm um, out in deep ocean. You don't really notice them, but as they run up the coast it becomes higher and higher and higher and it can cause really big damage. Is that because you've got lots
1: of waves catching up with each other or is it because the energy would be dissipated across a very deep ocean but as it gets into shallow water now you've got the same amount of energy but in much less water so you can
4: move that water through a much greater distance to, to dissipate the same amount of energy? Yeah essentially it, trans- it has a huge amount of momentum when it's in deep water and it converts that into height and so it gets higher and higher and higher and then it also the really big thing is it has a very very long wavelength so you get a huge amount of water rush- rather than a short wave you get a huge amount of water rushing up and then rushing down it's like a tide Coming in and out very quickly, which is why it's so devastating. And Sarah, what about the nuclear threat? Where are we with that?
2: Okay, so uh, it's the Fukushima nuclear power plants that are having problems at the moment. But I think the key point to uh, make is that a lot of people are probably concerned because you've seen that today there were pictures of people being tested for radiation and a small amount of people have tested positive. But I think a lot of people are concerned, you know, could this be another Chernobyl? Could there be a really serious risk to the local population? I think in general, the answer seems to be no, just because of the type of reactor that it is. It's cooled by water If something like this happens, you have all these control rods that get put down into the um, nuclear source, which absorbs all the neutrons that they're releasing and helps to stop the energy being produced. But you do still have uh, delayed neutron precursors, and they still keep releasing neutrons for a, a certain amount of time after this, which means you do still get heat building up. So they still need to cool the reactor after it's been shut down.
1: And the fact that they're having these problems, is that because the cooling isn't
4: working?
2: I think they were having some problem with the, the water cooling, but I'm, I'm not sure what the situation with this. That, with that I kind think of
4: essentially they should have pumps pumping water around it, which is keeping it cool. The system is designed so that even if the power goes off and the reactor stops producing power, um, it should have backup generators. I think the big problem they've had is their backup generators have failed, which means it stopped pumping water around, which means it has been overheating and causing all sorts of subsequent problems. And
1: if the worst case scenario does occur and there is um, an explosion,
4: how likely is it that there'll be widespread contamination? I mean, there's already been an explosion um, high up, but that wasn't a nuclear explosion by any means. You wouldn't get a nuclear explosion anyway. Um, that was, it was, um, hydrogen was being generated um, and that hydrogen has built up in the top of the building and they hadn't vented it properly and therefore that hydrogen just exploded. Is a very, very serious situation But at the moment, the amount of radiation which has been released is not good, but it's still less than x-ray for people who've been exposed, certainly outside the plant itself.
1: And also I think it's worth bearing in mind that Chernobyl was a long while ago and the Japanese technology is way in advance of, of what we have today. Isn't? This is
4: still a 70s um, um, reactor which was built in the early 70s.
2: But the key point here is that the moderator isn't made of graphite, which is, well, essentially combustible, which is what the problem was in Chernobyl. which It set fire because of the heat, whereas the moderator here is water, I think. So it's obviously it's not going to catch fire, so it's less of a problem. And also these plants are designed You know, every possible thing that could go wrong, they think of that and think, right, how can we deal with that? So they are designed to be as safe as possible.
1: Okay, thank you very much, both of you. Now, uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend, it's said but they can also be the worst enemy of cancer. And that's because scientists over in America at the University of California, San Francisco, this is George Chow and his colleagues, have worked out how to use tiny diamond particles to significantly enhance the power of cancer-killing drugs. So they've got a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week in which they discuss how they have added... A molecule called doxorubicin, which is an anti-cancer drug, to a nanodiamond. You make nanodiamonds by taking diamond powder and blasting it with a beam of electrons, and this makes these tiny octahedral structures, which are roughly the same size as a very small virus. They're about 10 nanometers across. And what the researchers have found is if you treat them with acid, then the faces or the facets of these tiny nanodiamonds become sticky because they have a negative charge on them. And you can then... Attach drug molecules to them, and those drug molecules, when added to cancer cells, get into the cells quite efficiently. But this is the real clincher they don't get pumped out of the cell very fast at all. Because one of the reasons cancers become resistant to chemotherapy agents is because they upregulate or switch on pumping systems which remove from the cell toxic chemicals like the chemotherapy drugs but because the the pumps can't move these nanodiamonds the drugs end up in the cells where they need to be and they slowly release the drug molecules out into the cell killing it and this means that the drugs are retained for much longer in the target tissue so you actually don't need to give as high a dose of the chemotherapy agent as you would do normally and therefore you have fewer side effects now they've done tests on cells in the dish and they found that the cells retain the drugs for 10 times longer than if you just give the drug on its own when they're conjugated to these nanodiamonds and then they did some studies in mice where they inject these particles into the bloodstream of mice which have liver cancers and also breast cancers and they find that the animals are able to live for significantly longer in one case there was no mortality at all when they were treated with these anti-cancer agents. Linked to the nano diamonds, compared with most of the animals that just got the normal drug or were controls, were all dead within 36 days or so. So, this strongly suggests this could be a way to target cancer much more effectively using diamond. So is this
4: anything special about the diamond or is it just the size of the particle you're using?
1: I think it's because once it gets inside the cell, because it's not a simple substrate, because it's a big chunk which can't just be pumped out through these little channels that these pumps operate, it's a bit like having something that's too big to fit through the pipeline. The agent gets sequestered inside the cell, can't readily be removed, and so therefore the drug leaches away from the diamond slowly and therefore damages the cell and that kills the cancer.
2: What is the fate of the individual nano diamonds in the body once they've done their job?
1: Yes, very good question. And the likelihood is that they're going to be retained in the body because they're these little tiny indigestible particles. But they are very stable and they're otherwise inert. So we would hope that they would therefore not be toxic. They would just accumulate somewhere in the body. But the thing is, if you've got a fatal or potentially fatal cancer, then having some diamond powder in you for a long time is probably a lot less bad than having a tumour which you can't treat. So I think probably, given the choice, I'd probably go for the diamonds. Now, also this week, um, scientists at Stanford University in California have discovered how certain changes in our DNA have sculpted the evolution of human-specific traits, and those in particular that set us apart from our closest relatives. And Dr David Kingsley is the co-author on the work, which is published this week in the Journal Nature. Hello, David. Hello there. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Could you tell us, David, first of all, what was the uh, approach? How did you try to work out genetically how we have changed in such a way that we can do what we can do, whereas animals like chimpanzees are still hanging around in trees?
5: One of the big breakthroughs now is that we have the complete genome sequence of both ourselves and many of our closest relatives. So the starting point for this research was to line up all the letters in the human genome uh, with the letters in, in related organisms and then look for places where the human sequence was different. That's been done before. People have looked for cases where individual letters uh, had changed in the human sequence. This study took a little bit different approach. We looked for blocks of sequence that were completely missing from the human genome, although present in chimpanzees and highly conserved across many other organisms. So the fact that they're present and highly conserved means they're likely to be functional. The fact that they're completely missing from humans suggest that they might contribute to interesting differences in our lineage compared to, compared to others.
1: And once you did this analysis, what genes started popping up as important and therefore, in other words, present and strongly conserved in the chimps and their relatives, but totally missing from us?
5: We found uh, over 500 locations in the human genome where uh, we were missing information, highly conserved in, in other animals. And one interesting uh, feature of that list of 500 locations was that they were almost all places where rather than changing the products of genes, you would change the regulatory information surrounding the gene. So you would alter how much they're expressed or exactly where those genes turn on, but you wouldn't destroy the product of the gene itself. That's oh, interesting... So,
1: so th- that's the point because people have gone looking for a lot of differences previously and trying to ask what sets us apart from our closest relatives and in fact it's not just the genes that are changing, it's the things that turn them on and off.
5: Exactly and we know that the, exactly that sort of change has a very important role in evolutionary differences in other organisms so to find that sort of list in the human genome was highly motivating to try to track down the molecular basis of particular human traits.
1: What about the really critical ones, the things we're, we're really interested in, things like forebrain expansion? We know that we have a very big prefrontal cortex, a bit of the brain that does the executive function and planning, compared with many of these other lower animals. Did you get any insights into how that happened from your work?
5: Yeah, I think that's a great example of a really interesting human trait, and it may seem paradoxical to try to explain how brains expanded, by looking at a list of sequences that were missing from the human genome. But in order to to look for exactly that sort of event, we searched the list for genes whose normal function is to repress or limit how much cells grow. So if if you lose information from a gene whose normal function is to limit cell division, the loss of that regulatory information may in fact lead to expansion. We found a great example of that in the list. There's uh, a gene called the tumor suppressor gene whose normal function is to limit cell division. And sure enough, one of the lesions that had happened in the human genome was to eliminate a switch that normally causes that gene to turn on in a special growth layer of the developing brain.
1: And did the research also inform any of the reasons why we get certain things that we'd rather not get? In other words, does it explain why we have certain uh, weaknesses that our close relatives don't have?
5: Well, the, uh, the, the list of molecular losses, we think, can explain both some gain traits like brain expansion, but also some loss traits in the human genome. We found some molecular switches next to a gene that controls structures that are lost in humans, including uh, sensory whiskers. We no longer have those. Uh, there's also Structures in many organisms, mice, chimps, and other animals called penal spines, and those are also missing in the human lineage, both controlled by a switch that has been deleted from the human genome.
1: Why don't we have those spines?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. It's important to remember this was really a how study, not a why study, so we know the molecular basis of losing those. The why it might be good to lose those, uh, there's lots of speculation about the potential functions of penile spines and other organisms. They're used to try to remove copulatory plugs that males leave in the female reproductive tract, so if multiple males are competing for fertilization, they can be a structure that uh, helps ensure the fertilization of one male compared to another. They're also sensory, they uh, increase stimulation in males. They may increase stimulation in females, but that could either be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it could be painful. In fact, some people have speculated that penile spines uh, may inflict a certain amount of tissue damage and make a female less uh, interested in reproduction with it, with another male. Potential- By losing
1: them, then, uh, we've ended up in a situation where actually it favours us having long-term relationships with uh, in a monogamous fashion.
5: That's right. So lots of organisms where the penile spines are present... Uh, Multiple males are competing for a brief period of fertility with a female, and the female is only interested for a short amount of time. In humans, female sexual receptivity is extended, uh, and we tend to form long-term pair bonds, which is a change in social structure within the human lineage that's associated with a whole series of anatomical changes, uh, including the loss of the penile spine.
1: David, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. And it's amazing to think how molecular genetics can then inform how we behave as a society and how we decide how we're going to have a monogamous partner or not. David Kingsley from Stanford University. You can read the work this week in the journal Nature.
4: Dave. Now, tiny throwaway cameras have been developed... Cameras these days are made on silicon chips, which have been getting smaller and smaller over the years. And this is great, but it's made wiring them up more and more difficult. These days, most complicated chips are made on a large silicon wafer up to 18 inches across, then cut out of the wafer to produce the individual chips. Then they're mostly wired up by making contacts on the surface, then turning them over and putting them onto a connector, and then soldering them on. Sounds fiddly. Um, That's not too bad if you can turn it upside down. What's really bad is if you're trying to make a camera. Because with a camera, if you did that, none of the light can get to the sensor, so it doesn't work. So you've got to keep them the right way up, which means you've got to make the connections from the side, from uh, sort of over the edge, and then you've got to put a lens over the top. So everything is very difficult, and especially trying to make a very, very small camera, it's incredibly fiddly and therefore expensive. A group from IZM Fraunhofer Institute have come up with a solution to this. Rather than connect the front of the silicon wafer, they've effectively drilled um, holes through a very, very thin wafer, all the way to the back, then filled these holes with a um, conductor, creating what's called a wire, so you've got a conducting path to the back. They've then, while it's still on the wafer, attached all the wires on the back while you've got a nice big thing to hold. They've turned it over and then they've actually just stuck a load of lenses on the front. And then you can just slice the whole thing up and you can get like 3,000 1mm across cameras <laughs> Absolutely tiny. a single um, wafer. But what can you do with them? Why would we want a camera that small? Well, um, one thing they're suggesting you could use them for is endoscopes. So you can have a very, very narrow tube, stick it into your body, and you can see what's going on inside. At the moment, the problem is with present technology, Once you taking taken out of somebody, it costs thousands of pounds, you want to reuse it. You've then got to clean it, and it's an electronic thing, so you can't cook it because it will damage it. So you've got to very carefully clean it, and that's a very difficult thing. These should be so cheap that you can essentially just throw them away when you're done with them and go on to the next patient. Which sounds good. Dave, thank you very much.
1: And Sarah, talking of things, long things, elephants have trunks. Tell us about elephants and how they can help each other
2: out. I've got a really nice story um, about how elephants are able to cooperate with each other just as well as chimpanzees. Um, Elephants live in big, complex social groups and they're known to show cooperative behaviour like looking after each other's young and things like that. Um, As you might imagine, there's kind of a lack of behavioural studies on elephants because they are so large and potentially quite dangerous if you want to make them do things. Um, This study, which was published in PNAS by Joshua Plotnik and his colleagues, uh, they used a group of docile elephants at the Thai Elephant Conservation Centre in Lampang in Thailand. Uh, the researchers modified a cooperation task that's actually been used in studying primates since the 1930s and what it does it involves having a tray with some food on it on the ground and it's separated from the pair of elephants by a fence so they can see it but they can't get to it and in order to bring the food into their reach the elephants had to pull on two ends of the same rope which was attached to the table so if one of them pulled on their end of the rope it would just pull the rope around the table and the table wouldn't go anywhere.
1: And neither would get fed.
2: Well, exactly. But if they then both pulled on their ends of the rope together, the tray would move towards them and they could reach the food. So the experimenters carried out three tests. They trained the individual elephants to be able to pull a rope to get the tray. Uh, And then they tested six pairs of elephants for cooperation. And after the first test, which showed that when you get two elephants and you have them released into their little roped-off compartments, they would go forward, pull the ropes together and get the tray... The question after that is, well, are they just doing that because they were trained to pull the rope as soon as they went in and they were released at the same time, so they both pulled it and they got the food. So they went and did some more tests and the second one was called delayed release where the elephants were released into their little compartments separately and the first would have to wait for their partner to arrive before they could pull the rope. And actually all the elephants showed a high success rate in learning to wait for their partner and they did manage to do that. Um, The third scenario was to ensure that the elephants weren't just using this arrival of the second elephant as a cue to pull their rope rather than understanding that the cooperation is what would bring the food. So here they had one end of the rope coiled up by the tray of food. So there was no way of retrieving the food. One elephant had one end of the rope, the other end was just off by the tray. So the elephants needed to understand that even if they pulled their end, the food would just not come to them, so they shouldn't bother pulling their end of the rope at all.
1: Did they not do that?
2: Yeah, that's actually what happened. It's, It's quite exciting. So they showed that the elephants were able to... Respond to the behavior of their partner and able to cooperate. Uh, But actually, one really amusing thing was that um, some of the elephants uh, came up with rather novel ways of sort of cheating the system. One of them actually. They
1: weighed about 10 tons and could just barge the fence out of the way. Well, yes,
2: no. One of them actually had to be excluded from the trial because she learnt to stand on her end of the rope. So her partner was pulling, so they got the food, but she wasn't doing any work. (laughs) She was just standing and like, oh, great, I've got the food now.
1: Oh, they're incredible. Also, of researchers to do experiments on animals that large i should think the outcomes can be sometimes quite unpredictable if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered this week the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news
0: distilling the best science the naked scientists
1: It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Sarah Caster-Perry and we are answering questions and on the line is Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Hi there. Far away, what can we do for you? So
6: the question that I had um, is that I know over the course of our lives we lose lots of cells that die uh, and are replaced but I wondered what cells are with us, if any, from birth until death and this is presuming that you live to be, you know, 60 plus or to an old age.
1: Sure. Well, there are lots of cells that you do replace on a minute-by-minute basis. There are other cells uh, that you replace never. In other words, they do have to last a lifetime. And good examples of this are some of the brain cells. Um, Although you can produce new brain cells during life, and that was a discovery made in the last 10-15 years, the vast majority of the brain cells that run your brain throughout your life You have to make last a lifetime. And one of the reasons why neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease are a problem is because once the nerve cells in certain parts of the brain die off, they're not replaced. So brain cells are a good example of a cell that lasts a lifetime. Another one are some muscle cells. And let's take a heart as an example. Another reason why a heart attack is bad news is because when the heart is injured by a heart attack, there's an interruption of the blood flow to a territory of the the heart, so you will therefore lose muscle cells there. Those cells, in humans at least, and other high animals, are not replaced they are replaced instead by just fibrous tissue and scar tissue. So you lose physical muscle tissue, and this means the heart loses its ability to pump so well. People used to think that fat cells were something that lasted a lifetime, and that if you overfed a baby, the baby would make far too many fat cells when it was little, and these would be carried through the rest of its life and give it an increased risk of obesity. But in more recent years, there was a lady called Kirsty Spalding, who's at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and she actually carbon-dated fat cells and found that they last about 12 years. And so you make new ones on a roughly 12-year basis. So you make a fat cell, it will last an average of 12 years, and then you can make some more fat cells. So the answer is your body is a mixed bag. Some cells are made and, and they're killed off and replaced very, very regularly, very, very rapidly. Blood cells last 120 days, for example. Others do have to genuinely last you a lifetime. Does that answer the question?
4: That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so
6: much.
1: Thanks for listening to The Naked Scientist. Good to have you with us. Now, Taylor is on the lines. Well, hi, Taylor. Hi there, guys. Where are you calling from?
3: I'm um, calling from Vancouver, Canada.
1: Ah, well, our first Canadian of the week. What can we do for you?
5: Well, since uh, Discovery just had its final mission, I had a couple uh space shuttle questions for you. One is, um, why is it that the shuttle's three main engines look like the very clean directional flame from a jet lighter, but the explosions coming out of the solid rocket boosters look like a huge mix of orange and yellow flame just bursting out? And uh, the second part is, how does the space shuttle manoeuvre at each point in its flight? Liftoff, primary ascent, orbit
3: and reentry.
4: Okay, start off at the beginning. Um, The two forms of rocket on the space shuttle are working very differently. The main engines on the back of the rocket are burning a mixed oxygen with hydrogen. So they've got liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen in the big fuel tank. Um, it 's then piped into the engines it 's then burnt um, it heats up to two or three thousand degrees centigrade, so you get essentially um, to form water You essentially get very, very hot water shooting out out the back it 's very very clean there 's almost no solids in it, and water doesn 't glow particularly well in the visible light, so the flame is almost invisible. The solid rocket boosters, on the other hand, are burning a completely different fuel. They're burning a sort of aluminium, and then they've got an oxidizer in there as well. And it's all mixed up when it's solids, and that burns, and it gets very, very hot, and it produces an awful lot of thrust. But what it's ki- is kicking out a lot of solid particles, and solid particles, when they get hot, they glow. It's a bit like if your cooker gets very hot, it glows red hot. So these solid particles coming out of the bottom of the boosters are going to be glowing very brightly they produce a lot of light and it's also coming out of much bigger holes so everything's a bit less focused and a bit less clean How does the space shuttle manoeuvre? I think when it's uh, in the takeoff phase so when it's going up um, the main engines are gimbaled that means they can change the direction of them um, and so if it's starting over to go too far over to the right, they kind of tip the engines round a little bit and it pushes the bottom of the rocket round. Um, and they, I think they, it's the main engine to do most of the, um, the, the directional um, thing of the shuttle as it goes up and then they can throttle the engines a bit, which will affect where it ends up, so you can do the boost. But the the most control is by gimbling them. Um, When it gets actually up into space and it's manoeuvring just gently up there, um, it's dropped off all the main engines, the main engines don't work, so they've got a few minor little thrusters which just... basically like very small rocket engines. They throw out stuff one way, it gets pushed the other way. Um, And then for re-entering, they've got some slightly larger engines, not as big as the main ones, which can produce enough thrust to lose enough energy so it will come down and hit the atmosphere and end up landing. Dave, thank you very much. Terrific answer. Sarah, here's one for you from John Burnap,
1: who, this is funny, he says, "Um, I have some rather nasty weeds in the garden. I don't want to use chemicals. Can I electrocute them?
2: Well, you know, that's very noble of him to not not want to use chemicals. I think the important point here is, yes, you could, but not in the same way that you would electrocute a human. Uh, So the reason that we would die by being electrocuted is because it will stop the heart, because the heart is full of little tiny cells called myocytes that have their own electrical rhythm. And then if you zap them with electricity, they start just firing madly and don't beat in rhythm because there's a a sinoatrial node which keeps them beating at a regular time you know keeping the blood going around your body but if you have a load of electricity going through that stops happening but obviously plants don't have that so uh, they can survive Uh, and in fact if you get a tree that's struck by lightning uh, this is one of the reasons that you shouldn't stand by a tree in a lightning storm is that they can actually explode because the sap inside the cells boils with the heat of the lightning and can make part of the tree sort of blast out. But depending on the extent of the damage, a tree can actually survive that. And you do see sort of scars down the side of trees that are still living and they've just sort of healed over. So you could kill the cells by frying them with electricity so that they got so hot that they died. Uh, But you'd be more likely to accidentally kill yourself in the process than the plants. So I think, you know, if you're going to, hit them with so much heat that they die, you might as well use a flamethrower. Or
1: even a garden spade and fork. Better still, that might be a better idea, mightn't it? Matt is with us. Hello, Matt. Hello. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. What can we do for you?
3: I have a question that I came up with a while ago. I, I recently bought some blue lasers online and I was busy lasing things in my house just for fun. And I happened to hit a bag of cashews and I noticed that they suddenly started glowing, like it left a streak and... Then I uh, started testing other things around the house and I found out that peanuts, peanut butter, almonds, cashews, and a few other things actually glowed after they were hit by the laser. Same thing like uh, glow-in-the-dark paint or glow tape and things like that. Did the glowing effect persist
1: after you turned the laser off? Is that what you're saying?
3: um, The best result was peanut butter, which lasted for about a second and a half after I turned the laser off.
1: And I guess you're wondering, well, what's going on? Why am I seeing this? Why why are
3: peanuts glowing in the dark?
1: Okay. well, what's going on with this is that, in fact, there was a paper that was published by some researchers in Athens about seven or eight years ago, uh, and they were looking at things like olive oil. They also looked at some other nut oils. Their motivation for looking at the fluorescence properties of oils was because they wanted to try to come up with a test in order to prove that a sample of oil was authentic, because lots of people sell virgin olive oil, for example, and often it's a mixture of horrible old stuff with a few other bits and pieces to make it look nice and green and vibrant as though it is. So they wanted to know, if they were to shine light into the sample, would it interact with the light in a certain way in order to produce a sort of fingerprint fluorescence pattern or something that they could use as a marker and they were really surprised to find yes it does and so i think what's going on with your glowing nuts is that when you shine the blue laser light in there are molecules in the nuts specifically there will be oil molecules which absorb the energy in the blue light and they then re-radiate or re-emit the energy shifted towards the green end of the spectrum because that's what these people found in Athens, that these oils soak up the energy and and especially vitamin E soaks up energy in the blue end of the spectrum and re-emits it in the green. So it soaks up energy at about 450 nanometers, bluish, and re-emits at about 525, 530 nanometers. That's green. And as a result, you get this nice colour glowing coming through. So I think that's probably what you're seeing going on. Sarah?
2: Does that mean that if you used a red laser, you wouldn't get the same effect?
1: Probably, because the molecules are sensitive to the wavelength of blue light, and that's how the energy is inputted in the first place. But then after the uh, laser is turned off, there's enough energy still in the molecule that it then, when it relaxes back to its original unexcited state, then re-emits the energy at the green wavelength. And that's that's what happens. Anyway, great question, and I I hope that uh, that was a good enough answer for you, Matt. Sarah.
2: Well, I've got a question for you here, Chris, and it's from Toby Tennant. And he says uh, that we're told that a cut is itching when it's healing and that scratching something that's itchy is obviously bad for the healing process. So why have we, we evolved this tendency to cause a healing cut to itch? What is it that makes wounds itchy?
1: Well, there are special nerves in the skin and this has only been discovered in fairly recent times, as in the last few years, but there are itch-specific nerve fibres in the skin, and their job solely is to signal to the spinal cord that an area of the skin is being irritated in a way that we would perceive as itchy. And those nerve cells are activated in a number of ways one of them is mechanically so if you have an insect crawling on you for example the insect crawling over your skin elicits the right kind of stimulus that those nerve cells are interested in and they are triggered so you are therefore paying attention to that bit of skin because there might be a bug which is biting you which might be about to give you malaria or something so that's the first point is mechanical the nerve cells are also sensitive to chemicals and there are certain chemicals which when you put them on your skin they're irritants and as a result they make you think, oh, I've got an itchy patch of skin again, you pay attention and you brush away the irritant chemical. Now, when you have a wound, the wound closes by cells around the margins of the wound proliferating in other words growing and they then migrate from the margins of the wound down into the base of the wound they actually follow the electrical gradient a guy in aberdeen discovered in the last five years or so that the inside of the wound is at a different voltage than the margin and the cells flow down this electrical gradient so they know where the base of the wound is they then unite with their cellular counterparts and stitch themselves into place and then they start to contract contractile filaments which pull the wound closed. So as they do that, they're eliciting a mechanical stress, which the itch-sensitive nerves will respond to. And at the same time, there are various other factors which get released in a healing wound, chemicals, which provoke healing in the wound, but also upregulate the activity of these itch-sensitive nerves. So therefore, a wound that's closing up will feel itchy for mechanical and chemical reasons, which are precisely the reasons why those nerve cells get stimulated in the first place. So that's the reason.
2: So it's kind of like when you have a cut on on your hand hand on your arm or something and you see that kind of stretchy looking skin as, as, it, as it knits together it's kind of is that the thing that causes the itching it's that kind of pulling of the cells towards the wound
1: yeah it's the whole thing pulling itself close together which is exerting a mechanical influence on the underlying nerve fibers Dave I've got one for you which has been sent in by Jim who is over in the states so here it comes
5: hello my name is Jim Morris calling from Tampa Florida in the United States My question concerns the cosmic microwave background radiation. When you guys talk about it, you say it's left over from the Big Bang. But it seems to me if it was created by the Big Bang, it would have radiated outwards at the speed of light for all these billions of years, well before our galaxy was ever created. So how are we still seeing it? What is it bouncing off of? Or maybe I'm just missing something. Thank you for considering my question. Have a nice one.
4: That's a really interesting question. Um, as far as we know, um, the universe is effectively infinite. And the, what the Big Bang wasn't an explosion in one place in space and stuff moving out into the rest of space. It was the fact that all of the space was just a lot smaller. So um, everything was a lot closer together. Um, because the universe was infinite, um, however far back you go, there'll always be some more universe further away. So the light could have travelled from somewhere just slightly further away so it can travel through more universe and get to us. The other thing with the cosmic microwave background radiation was that it didn't, um, it isn't dating from the very beginning of the Big Bang. It's actually light given off when electrons um, joined up with protons to form hydrogen atoms and joined up with um, helium nuclei to form helium atoms. And that released a lot of um, sort of X-ray stroke, ultraviolet light. Um, And that happened about 380,000 years after the very, very violent beginning of the Big Bang. So by that point, the universe was actually already quite big. And we just are happy to see that out at sort of 13 or 14 billion light-years away. So, um, um, and that's the edge where light is travelling to us from. As we um, wait uh, in a billion years' time, we will see that light coming from another billion light-years further away. And so, as far as we know, if the universe is infinite, we'll keep on seeing it forever because the light will have just travelled further. So, for a longer time.
1: I mean, the point is that, as you say, the universe was created everywhere all at once in those early days so every bit of it is emitting radiation and therefore as it expands and grows and then 13 billion years later here we are um, we're seeing light which is coming from one side of it the opposite side to which we are and so as a result there's still stuff coming our way because it was coming from everywhere all at once
4: and as far as like, we know it'll keep on coming
2: Now, if you've ever neglected a houseplant, I know I have, I'm not very good at keeping houseplants alive, you'll know this problem, that when you finally come to water it, the water doesn't soak into the soil, but it forms beads all over the surface. Now, on a larger scale, these hydrophobic soils can cause major problems. And to discover how, Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been to meet a scientist who loves the rain.
6: Well, I really couldn't have picked a better day to investigate the effects of moisture on soil. I'm in the grounds of Swansea University with Stefan Durr, and you've got a a water bottle here. Uh, Why do we need a water bottle when it's raining quite so much?
7: Yeah, that's a a good point. Well, I'm just going to add a little bit more water to two different soils here on campus. One is under a conifer tree, and the other one is under a deciduous tree, and I'm just going to show you the effect.
6: Sweat away the leaves. Yep, so we've got a nice smooth soil
7: surface here under the conifer tree. And look at that—it's actually not going in; it's it's beading up.
6: That's really weird. It's almost like mercury. It's if you poured mercury on a surface. Not that you're allowed to do that anymore. Yeah, you know. If you pour mercury on a surface, the beads speeds of water. Yeah. On a well-soaking wet day. Well, exactly.
7: Everywhere else, it's soaking wet. Let's just move across to somewhere else and move, let's put some uh, water onto a what I would say a normal soil. If you pour some water on it, we get what we normally expect to get. The water infiltrates fairly rapidly, although. The soil is already fairly wet from the rain we had now for probably about 24 hours.
6: Which raises the question, why is it not soaking in under that conifer tree?
7: Well, exactly. I mean, that's what we call soil hydrophobicity or soil water repellency. Now, you've been investigating this, not outside, but actually in the lab. But to really understand the phenomenon, we basically have to go into the lab. We have to investigate it in quite some detail and at a range of scales as well.
6: Even inside, you can't get away from the rain. This is the Rainfall Simulation Laboratory, which uh, consists of a large steel frame, a bottle, a bucket, if you like, on on top, and a box which is simulating the rainfall, so it's dropping in drops through a wire mesh onto two different types of soil.
7: On the right-hand side, we have the wettable soil, and the rain is almost causing little craters in the loose soil surface. It's a loose material, and it's soaking up very nicely. And on the left-hand side, it's not forming craters, and and as we've seen outside, the water is just sitting on the surface, just like mercury. We want to be able to predict when soil becomes hydrophobic, under which conditions, when does it actually switch to a hydrophobic condition. So, for example, when we have drought periods in the UK or elsewhere, and the soil becomes relatively dry, hydrophobicity tends to switch on, With all these implications, as you can see now here on the rainfall simulation plot, the water's just running off the surface. And that, for example, may be something that uh, could have contributed to the devastating floods in 2007. There's evidence that the soils weren't particularly wet. In 2007, we had a very dry uh, spring in April, very, very dry period, followed by an obviously very, very wet period. But the soils didn't actually soak up the water everywhere as they should have done. So we think hydrophobicity may have well played a role.
6: Now, you've been studying this, haven't you, at the, at the microscopic level, actually beyond the microscopic level. Yes,
7: yes. I mean, what we've done in recent years, we've looked at the chemistry of those compounds that actually cause water repellency. And what we do is we use a technique called atomic force microscopy. That's basically a microscopy that's not using light or X-ray. It's, in a sense, using a microscopic or rather a nanoscale little tapping device that scans across the surface of a salt particle and uh, that's basically at a scale you couldn't actually see with a with a normal microscope. So you can see what type,
6: or see, I'm, perhaps we shouldn't use the word see, no, that's but great, you yes. can detect, if you like, the individual molecules and what effect they're having.
7: Yes, in a sense you can't actually visualise the molecules themselves that will be pushing it, but what we can see is, at, at the nanoscale basically, how the organic coating on the soil surface, how that varies. If we have a vegetable soil surface, it looks quite different than uh, on a hydrophobic surface. And the physical properties at that particular level, so, for example, are are these compounds, do they form a smooth layer, for example, or do they actually look more like a a landscape with with little craters and little globules of organic material? And the latter is actually the case. Do they
6: come from something living, then?
7: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely clear that these compounds are organic. They are derived from... Uh, living organisms in a sense it could be just abraded from plant leaves for example plant leaves often repel water they're waxy but it could also be from microorganisms like fungi or bacteria that actually produce hydrophobic compounds.
2: Stefan Durr at Swansea University investigating the effects of hydrophobic soils and you can download the latest Planet Earth podcast from the com forward slash planet earth.
1: Now, this is highly relevant, Sarah, because uh, having heard about plants and rainwater and things, Laura Pope has got in touch and she says, I've got a question for you. What biological processes cause flowers to wilt?
2: Well, there are two different things that are going on here. I mean, there's the argument of why plants wilt. So in the case, if you have a house plant, and why if you don't water it, it wilts. And I'll address that bit first. And what it is, is that Usually in plants, the cells within the plant are what are known as turgid, which means that they're absolutely stuffed full of water, which keeps moving into them by osmosis. Uh, And they're they're very rigid, which is how plants are able to support themselves. But um, if they're not able to get enough water, the... Water will move out of the cells and the cells become sort of floppy or what's known as flaccid. And that is why the plant is no longer able to support itself and the leaves go all floppy and wilted and soft. Uh, so that's what happens if you don't get enough water. But there are actually some other reasons behind um, cut flowers wilting. So obviously, if you don't water them, the same thing will happen. Uh, but also it can be because uh, they run out of nutrients because obviously they're no longer attached to roots that are getting any nutrients as well. and be a buildup of bacteria and fungi and things on the end of the cut surface but also when you cut flowers you cut them you know on your worktop or whatever and then you put them in water and because of the water tension within the xylem vessels which are the vessels that go up and down a plant carrying the water around because of that tension if you cut the stem sucks in a bubble of air into the xylem which then if you put the stem in water it stops more water from flowing up the xylem so that actually can be a real reason why they wilt so actually some florists recommend that you cut the stems of flowers underwater which will keep the water just a little droplet on the end whilst you put them in the vase and will help them to stay alive for longer
1: Thanks, Sarah. It's Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry and it's our science phone-in show. So if you have any science questions for us and uh, Dave Glossop's got in touch to ask whether he can actually purify ethanol by reverse osmosis. He's doing a bit of home brewing in Australia. So uh, I don't know what the laws are there but w- the answer to that one's coming up. If you would like us to, to uh, answer a science question for you, email chris at com, or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. <laughs>
0: Laying the facts bare. The naked scientists. And this
1: is The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, Sarah Caster-Perry and Dave Ansell. Uh, we're taking your science questions. We've heard from Troy McLuhan and also Nat Spirit, who are listening in Second Life. Hello to all of you. Uh, they're reacting to the point about burning up the weeds in the garden with the electricities that you were saying, Sarah. Troy agrees with us and says, why don't you just pull them up? And then Nat Spirit, perhaps uh, in response to Matt's point about uh, his blue laser pointer that was fluorescing things, he says, can't you laser the weeds out if you want to do something really exciting? This one's from NSHQ on Twitter. Uh, Lovely question. He says, from my daughter who I presume must be a sort of tooth-losing age, because he says, why do wobbly teeth wobble but they don't fall out straight away? I have to thank my friend Steve Jones, who's a dentist at Brimfield Hospital in Essex, who I phoned up about this one just to make sure I had the appropriate knowledge. He tells me that the reason teeth get wobbly when they're your deciduous teeth, your first teeth, is because the secondary dentition, the adult teeth, grow in from underneath and the growth of the adult tooth erodes the root of the juvenile deciduous dentition, and that releases the tooth from the interface with the bone, making it obviously less tightly bounded or bonded in the first place, plus part of that loss means that you don't have an interface between the gum or what's called the periodontal ligament and the connective tissue of the jaw because the teeth are connected via these tough fibrous strands, the periodontal ligaments, to the surrounding jaw tissue. And as that becomes eroded away, then you've got less and less connections holding the tooth in place, so it becomes wobblier and wobblier. I said to him, should you do the thread round the tooth slamming the door trick? And he said, no, probably not. Probably better to just let it fall out naturally. So there you go. Now this one, uh, Dave... Dave Glossop says, uh, can ethanol be purified by reverse osmosis? I'm making my own homebrew spirits with dextrose and yeast. Entirely highly illegal. It then got me wondering if I could get rid of the water by putting it through a reverse osmosis plant. So before I boil it all off, um, could I use this to get a 10% alcohol solution to turn into a much higher concentration, says Dave Glossop. Yeah, I don't
4: want to comment on the legality of this, but let's stick to the science. okay? what is reverse osmosis um, in the first place? Um, This is used uh, um, quite often for purifying water to get salt out of it. Essentially, you have a membrane which will let water through, um, but not salt, for example. So if you you apply pressure to one one side on the salt water, the water is forced through the membrane. The salt can't get through, so you end up with saltier water on one side and fresh water on the other side. So essentially what he's attempting to do is get a membrane which will let water water through but not alcohol. Um, you apply pressure to it and then that pumps all the water out, leaving the alcohol and all the other stuff in there. I imagine it will end up tasting very, very strongly because very <laughs> few of the um, taste molecules are going to get uh, go through. So it's going to end up with a very, very, very flavoursome brew. Um, I think it depends on your membrane. I've looked up some membranes are better at this than others. You'd have to pick one which is particularly good at um, noticing a difference between the alcohol and the water. And if you get one which works, if you pick the right membrane, there's no reason why it wouldn't work.
1: Dave, thank you very much. Dave's going to escape in just a second for our kitchen science this week. If you want to have a go, you're going to need a balloon and a stream of water. So he's going to head off to the kitchen now to go and have a go at that. Sarah, why don't you tell us in the meantime, George Pope has written in and says, why do we see blotches after looking at lights? Why is it that when you look at a certain type of light for a long period of time, blotches of black appear when you then look away?
2: Well this is a, a very similar to effect that what you get when you know when you're, you're all standing there at a party and someone takes a photo and you get those spots in front of your eyes from the flashes and you just can't see anything. Uh, it's because of something called photo bleaching and it happens to the cells in your retina which is the light sensitive bit at the back of your eye and uh, it's populated with cells called rods and cones and these are full of light sensitive pigments and when you get uh, n- normally in a normal situation you get light uh, as, p- as particles called photons coming into your eye. These uh, stimulate the cells by changing this light sensitive pigment which is called retinal uh, into a slightly different form and this stimulates the cells to send electrical impulses to your brain but if you get a really bright light like a flash or if you look at the sun for a long time or even just a really bright light bulb this sort of sends the cells into overdrive and they get really overexcited. and it takes them a little while to calm down so then when you look at a normal level of light like a wall or just sort of around you get these kind of black spots where you've been looking at the light where the cells have been overstimulated.
1: So you have lost the photopigment in that particular area temporarily because it's been broken down by the photons of light hitting it and when it regenerates comes back then you see normally again but while it's regenerating up the pigment because of the overexposure you see a a, a less um, intense Spots, so you therefore see a dark spot because worth noting actually that um the retina is less active when light shines on it than in the dark and it's in fact deactivated by light rather than activated by light it's rather paradoxical isn't it
2: it's slightly the opposite of what you would think yes it's the the chemical sort of chain reaction that happens is uh it just stops the cells from doing so much action yeah
1: Brilliant, thank you Sarah. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris Smith, Sarah Caster-Perry and Dave Ansell and we're answering your science questions for you and Ben and Dave have taken the trip to the kitchen. Hello guys.
8: Hello, it's quite nice to be back in a kitchen for kitchen science which makes a change as most of our experiments recently have been things that Dave has done in the studio usually trying to embarrass yourself or Helen and now we're in a kitchen to do something very much kitchen related. Dave, what are we going to be doing?
4: Very, very simple experiment, all you need is a balloon (laughs)
8: Dave is now going to blow up a balloon. Now, you could have prepared this in advance, Dave. He's gone bright red, but he's blown it up with one lungful of air. Very well done. I have a big chest. (laughs) Now, obviously, we'll have to tie the balloon off and then we'll have a balloon ready. So, in the kitchen with a balloon, what's next?
4: Okay, so we'll start off with a little bit of a control experiment. Um, We're going to turn on the tap. So, you just get a sort of narrow stream of water running down. So we'll turn on the kitchen tap now. Oh, actually, it's on very
8: slowly, so this wouldn't be enough to fill up a bowl. This isn't on full flow. This is a very gentle... It's just breaking up into drips at the bottom.
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, Just a control experiment. I just move the balloon near it. Nothing happens at all. No, nothing's happening. Okay, then just get the balloon and rub it on some hair. You may find your head hair works well. I, for some reason, find mine doesn't work at all. But my leg hair works beautifully, so i just use my leg hair here for a moment. Right, well, as it's still not quite warm enough for Dave to be in his shorts,
8: he's pulled up his trouser leg and is rubbing the balloon on his thoroughly hairy legs. Um, Davey is, it has to be said, a little bit of a wookie in that regard. Now what's happening while you're doing
4: this? Okay, so as I rub the balloon against my hair every time a hair touches the balloon, they're different materials. Essentially the balloon attracts electrons slightly more so the electrons get transferred from the hairs to the balloon and the balloon charges up to be negatively charged. Now that's
8: fairly well established. We've done these experiments before. Lots of people know that when you rub a balloon on your hair you get static on it. What's this going to do with the water?
4: Okay, so if we move this now towards the stream of
8: water oh wow it instantly bends the stream of water towards the balloon that's actually quite a dramatic effect it's bending it quite a lot you haven't you've been lucky so far not (laughs) to touch the balloon but it definitely bends it towards the balloon what's happening what's going on what's the interaction between the statically charged balloon
4: and that stream of water Well, the balloon is now negatively charged. It moves towards the stream of water because the stream of water is continuous and connects up to the tap and it conducts electricity reasonably well. That means it will push some electrons up into the tap and the tap is earth so it can disappear miles and miles away. So essentially the stream of water now has got fewer electrons so it's positively charged. The the positive charge attracts negative charge, so the stream of water is attracted to the balloon until it gets so close that some drops of water jump out off the stream of water, hit the balloon and discharge it, and it stops working. So the stream of water is actually working a bit like an electrical wire. It's allowing that charge to move away. Yeah, that's right. And so it becomes positive and it attracts. This effect is also used for spray painting. Sometimes you'll get the, um, you, you make the spray gun positively charged, you'll make the piece of metal you're trying to spray negatively charged. That means droplets are positively charged, they're attracted to the piece of metal, and they'll, all of them, pretty much all of them will hit the piece of metal, reducing wastage hugely and stopping you getting huge amounts of spray all over the place. You can even actually paint the back of the bit of metal while spraying it from the front. So this is water. Would it matter if it was a different fluid? Or even if it
8: was, say, filtered
4: water or old warm water that's been in a copper tank? If you had a perfectly insulating thing, it probably wouldn't work quite as well because the electrons couldn't move as far. Most things, electrons move a little bit, and this is exactly the same reason why even an insulating thing like a wall, if you charge up the balloon and stick it to a wall, push the electrons away, leaves a positive charge near the balloon, the balloon sticks to that, and so the balloon will stick to the wall. Well if you haven't had the chance to give this a try at home
8: then we will make sure we put some photos and possibly even a video online at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science where there are always lots and lots of exciting experiments that you can try at home and from us here in the kitchen I think I might make some
1: tea, back to you Chris (laughs) I'm just thinking of the prospect of Dave Electro spraying a car by rubbing the things on his leg in order to charge them up but I presume they've got slightly higher tech things than that
8: I, I do hope so yes because otherwise Dave's leg hair would be much in demand
1: <laughs> Would It Thank you Ben, Ben and Dave in the kitchen Right, so you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith with Sarah Caster-Perry and with Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler just there and we're about two minutes away from finding out why a potato peeler never needs sharpening, can't wait for that but before then Josh is with us, hello Josh Yes,
5: hello What can we do for you? Um, well I live in Michigan over in America, and I've had to uh, shovel a lot of snow over the last month. And it led to a question of um, when you come in from the cold and your hands are really, really cold and you stick them under even just somewhat warm water, it feels a lot hotter than the water really is.
1: And the question is why. This is called adaptation. And under normal circumstances, the nerve cells which are carrying sensory information from our peripheries into the core of the body, into the central nervous system to inform the brain as to what the environment is like. They are very rapidly adapting. What this means is that they are largely interested in how things are changing. They're not so interested in the static situation. And that's because if you didn't have something that quickly got bored and stopped signalling the absolute level of something, then you'd suffer from sensory overload. So they tend to signal change. Now, if you have got your hands very, very cold, then there's very little increase in the temperature in your hands and therefore the nerves that signal warmth are largely very inactive. The ones that signal cold are firing off saying it's cold and I'm getting colder. When you then put your hands indoors or under warmish water the amount of firing in the warm fibres now goes through the roof because where they were previously not very responsive they've gone from going I'm very, very cold, so I'm not going to react, to suddenly, wow, the temperature is increasing very, very rapidly, and it's actually the change that they're interested in, and so they fire intensively, and that's why you experience this sensation that things are much, much hotter than they are. There's also
4: a lovely experiment you can do with this, completely confusing your body. If you put one hand in a very hot w- water one in a very, very cold, then put them both in the middle, it's entirely confusing. One hand feels hot, one feels cold in the same water. It's actually in our book, Chris Packet Fireworks, um, we actually explain how to do that experiment if you want to have
1: a go. Right, we'd better find out the answer to this very important question. Sarah?
2: Yes, so it's time to join our Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week.
9: This week, pull up a peeler and take a potato.
3: Hi, this is Neil from Villa Terslan
4: in Switzerland. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and I've got a question for you. Why is it that a potato peeler doesn't need sharpening where every other kitchen knife does?
9: So, what's so special about the humble utensil? It turns out that it doesn't need sharpening simply because it doesn't need to be sharp.
3: Yes, this is Tony Atkins. I'm Emeritus Professor of Engineering at the University of Reading there is something called the critical crack opening displacement, which means how much have you got to stretch the end of the crack before the crack will carry on propagating. If you're using a knife to get rid of the skin or peel, then you have to wedge open the material at the end of the blade, at least as much as this property called the crack opening displacement. And I was surprised to discover this magic displacement that you have to achieve for potato is actually much bigger than you would have to do for meat or cheese. Now, the implication of that is that to cut meat, certainly, and cheese, you really need something very sharp, whereas with potato, because this value is big anyway, you can say that, well, why bother to have something which is sharp?
9: A potato peeler doesn't need sharpening because it still works well even when it's blunt. But there's also something about the angle of cutting which makes using a less sharp tool even easier.
3: What is much more interesting about cutting is the whole business of why if you take a knife, however sharp it is, you can cut. But it is so much easier if you introduce some horizontal reciprocating motion. That turns out to be a very, very interesting Problem that I've solved, and it goes like this. That if you say cutting something requires work to do it, which is force times displacement, and you say, okay, well, if I put a bit of work in sideways, then clearly I won't require as much work pressing down. That is true, but when you do the sums, you get a strange nonlinear coupling between the forces, meaning that the slightest horizontal movement reduces the vertical force considerably. And that's why it's so noticeable. And what this also goes on to is that it means that the overall forces required to cut are less if you have this sort of slice and push together. And that means that you don't damage the surfaces that you cut. And that can be very commercially important if you think of buying salads or something containing melon in a supermarket The normal way of cutting them, you damage lots of cells adjacent to the surfaces that you've cut, and these weep out liquid, so the shelf life is improved if you do the cutting properly.
9: Peeling horizontally requires less effort than cutting vertically down into a substance in many cases, so a peeler doesn't have to be as sharp as other knives simply because of the way it's used. On the forum, lamprey 5 said there's not much in the potato to blunt the knife, such as minerals, which only comprise 1.1% of a potato. RD mentioned that some blades are self-sharpening, as they have one harder side, meaning that the other side wears away faster to maintain a narrow edge. Next week, on a slightly larger scale...
7: My name is David, and I'd like to know, how do we measure the distance to the nearest star...
9: How do we measure the distance of something that distant? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or write on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thanks, Diana. So if you know the answer, do get in touch. Drop us an email to chris
2: at if you've got any ideas.
1: That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to our guest, at David Kinsley, and also our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Tom Simkins, Diana O'Carroll and Ben Vowsler. Things to note, or a thought to go home on, That Spirit got in touch on Second Life and said, could you stick a cat to a wall with static? Well, fundamentally, we think there's no reason why not, but uh, the amount of energy you would need would probably, at voltage level, be lethal. Do join us next time when we'll be exploring the science of parallel universes. If you have any questions about the existence of a universe other than our own, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a very nice evening, and until next time, goodbye.
0: The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK FAST. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.